When we said our farewell to uh, Terry and Nancy a moment ago, uh, John read from uh, Proverb. Uh, Most men will proclaim everyone their own loyalty, but a faithful man who can find. And I, for myself, I can't think of a of a more appropriate, more apt proverb than that one to quote uh, with regard to Terry and Nancy. He has been indeed a faithful man. He's the best team builder I have ever met. And uh, we're going to miss him. I was watching uh, the Olympics last night and those Shots of Debbie Thomas's campus reminded me, Terry is from that campus, and I was a minister to students there for years, and I uh, thought back on the, the evangelistic meetings we used to have in fraternities and dorms and out on the plaza and dorm Bible studies and those sorts of things that we did together and brought back a lot of rich memories of my time with uh, students there, and in particular with Terry. I ought to mention, too, that Nancy was as involved in the building as Terry. She's the one that designed, uh, did a lot of our colors. We, we men don't know what to do. We were going to put plasterboard up here. You know? <laughs> and she suggested that knotty pine, and it certainly makes a difference. And She uh, suggested the colors that we use in our auditorium. Well, we, just, we deeply appreciate them, and we're going to miss them a great deal. Turn with me, please, to the 19th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 19. And uh, Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage. Very, very tough subject. It's one I would like to avoid, if I could. I always approach this particular text with a lot of uncertainty because I know we're not talking theory. We have uh, people in our congregation whose marriages and whose hearts have been broken, uh, who are living with uh, disastrous uh, divorces in their past, a lot of wreckage in their life, or they're living in extremely difficult marriages at the time. And I know how, how difficult this teaching seems to be. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19 appears to be one of those uh, hard sayings, as his early disciples would have put it. And that's why I always want to say at the very outset, we have to look at a passage like this in terms of what we know about God's character and his love for us. This only seems to be good news when we understand that that any teaching we receive from our Lord is screened through his love. He cares for us. He understands us. He knows about us. He died for us. In our affliction, as Isaiah 63 puts it, he is afflicted. He understands our suffering. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This wasn't theory to him either. And uh, when he said what he said in this passage, uh, he said it well aware of the hurt and the pain that uh, it could cause in the lives of people that, that he, was, uh, he was teaching. And we need to look at this passage in, in that light. Uh, the uh, setting for the... Uh, Uh, for the debate with the Pharisees is given to us in the first three verses of chapter 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. That phrase, when Jesus had finished saying these things, occurs frequently in Matthew. It's a marker indicating a change of direction. Our Lord left uh, the northern part of Palestine, uh, Palestine, the region of Galilee, went across the 
Jordan River into the country that uh, we call Jordan today. And he began to heal there. Large crowds followed him and he healed them. That's a a fact to keep in mind when we look at one of these so-called hard sayings, like a surgeon who sometimes has to hurt. Our Lord's ultimate uh, concern is always to heal. Some Pharisees came to test him, to put him to the test. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Pharisees apparently came over from uh, Jerusalem. These were the theologians of, of that day, the clergy. They came to put Jesus to the test. The question they asked was not an, an honest question. They weren't asking to get information. They wanted to push him into a no-win situation. They wanted him to declare himself on one side or the other on this issue so that he would polarize his, his following. We have to understand the reason uh, for the question. Then is now divorce was a very difficult question, much debated. And very emotional, emotionally loaded at the deepest level. And uh, the Pharisees wanted Jesus to declare himself in such a way that uh, he would lose, no matter what, uh, what, que- and what answer he gave. In chess, this is what chess players call a fork. It's a no-win situation. Whatever move he made, he would lose, lose a position, lose a piece. The, uh, the NIV translates their question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a little bit of an over-translation, but they're trying to get apart and get, uh, get across the point of the question. And, and basically, it's this. Is there any reason at all, or can a man or a woman divorce their spouse for any reason, whatever? And there were two schools of thought in Israel in, those day, in that day, as, as there are today. There was the more lax, lenient school that would permit... Uh, divorce for almost any reason, irreconcilable differences. You know, she burned the bagels, whatever. She, that, was a, that was a reason for divorce. And then there was the more rigid, conservative school. There were two rabbis that headed up this, uh, these schools, and people lined up behind one or the other of, of these rabbis. And so you can see what they were trying to do. They wanted Jesus to take a position and divide his, uh, his following. Uh, our Lord is always... Uh, as always, responds uh, in an unpredictable way. He answers their question with a question. Haven't you read? He replied uh, to uh, this to people who were perhaps the best read people of their generation. The rabbis were Old Testament scholars. They knew the their Bible inside and out. They counted the words and the letters. And the critical markings, they, they uh, still today in Jewish Bibles have what amount to batch totals at the end of each book, giving the number of uh, letters, words in the, in the book. They knew the Bible thoroughly, but uh, they had misread the Scriptures. That's Jesus' point. He calls, uh, calls them on, that, on their lack of reading skills from time to time. They read the text, but they didn't really read the text. And this is a case in point. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning... The Creator made them male and female, that's a quote from Genesis 1, and said, and the subject of that verb said is the Creator. The Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's simply quoting from Genesis 2. And his commentary follows, So they are no longer two but one. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. The word for separate is the word the Old Testament or the New Testament word for divorce. It's used that way in classical Greek, used that way throughout the Bible. Paul himself uses that term in 1 Corinthians 7 to refer to, uh, to divorce. Now, do you understand what he's saying? It's very important. Our Lord does not get his, uh, uh, his doctrine of divorce from contemporary society. It goes all the way back to the beginning. His primary and primitive source is the Bible, and specifically the first book of the Bible. You notice how he puts it? The Creator made marriage, and the Creator mandated that they stick together for life. God makes marriage. You say, well, he didn't make mine. Uh, you know, ours was foolhardy. It was precipitous. It never should have been. No. No, the Lord said, God makes marriage. He unites two. This was the way it was in the beginning. doesn't take his clue from contemporary society. This command transcends cultural, temporal considerations. It has, has nothing to do with time and place and culture and the kind of society we live in, from the very beginning, uh, Moses says, and, Lord, and the Lord says, the Lord affirms, it was God's intention that, that a man and a woman stay together for life. Marriage is for life, not as long as we shall love, but as long as we shall live. Through sickness or health, for richer or poor, for better or worse, until death separates us. For life. So you can see what Jesus is saying. The, the, the Pharisees want to talk about divorce. Under what circumstances can, can married people get a divorce? And our Lord says, we're not going to talk about divorce. Let's talk about, let's talk about staying married. I've mentioned before, when people come into my office and they want to talk about divorce, I point out to them that my, my purpose is not to help them with a divorce, it's to help them with a reconciliation. Let's talk about marriage. Let's not talk about divorce. That's what our Lord is doing. And the point that he's making is that marriage, divorce for a married couple is not in the cards. At least it was not in the original deal. That's the point. Originally, God's plan was that one man and one woman stick together for life. A man leaves his mother and father and he, and he cleaves to his wife. He sticks together with her. As a, a student friend of mine one time uh, said in his, in his wedding ceremony, he looked at his wife, Jody, and he said, Jody, I will never, under any circumstances, whatever, split. And, and that's what Jesus is talking about. It's that kind of commitment. We're talking about, that's the bottom line. It's commitment. We will not consider divorce. It's not in the cards. God's original plan is one man and one woman together for life until death separates us. Our Lord takes us back to the original command and he himself affirms it. So we have his authority. And we're not at liberty to question that authority. If Jesus is Lord, then he's Lord over every aspect of our life. And if our Lord says, this is our primary authority, this, uh, this section of Genesis, then we can have no lesser view, no lower view of the inspiration of that, second, uh, that section of Scripture. God said, 
A man's to leave his wife, his father and mother, and cleave to his wife. And what God has joined together, Jesus said, we must not separate. Now, that's Jesus' teaching on the subject. He says, in essence, to the Pharisees, we're not going to talk about divorce. Let's talk about staying married. Now, uh, they, they raise a supplementary question. It's a good one. Their logic is, is crystal clear. Verse 7, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you. Notice he corrects the apostles. You're wrong, he says, in your understanding of the Old Testament. What you consider to be a command, God uh, considers a concession to the hardness of your heart. Notice how he argues. Verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And the, the Old Testament doesn't say much about divorce. It's very little. But there's one text that takes up the, this issue, and uh, it was this text that the Pharisees were harking back to. It would be good, I think, to go back and look at that, uh, that Old Testament uh, law. It's found in the book of Deuteronomy. Will you turn there with me, please? Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now let me explain something about this law. There are two types of law in the Old Testament. There are those absolute commands, the sort of thing that you find in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Then there is another form of commandment, that Old Testament theologians describe as case law. In other words, they are judgments that come out of actual court cases. Moses was a, a judge as well as a prophet. And this particular text is a law based upon a precedent which Moses himself set in an actual trial. The people that are mentioned apparently were actual litigants, plaintiffs, in a court case that, that uh, 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 Moses himself tried, and this was his decision. And we know that because of the form. Now, let's read the text and let's read it carefully and not make the mistake that the Pharisees made. I'm reading chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because she, he finds something indecent about her, and I should say at this point, no one knows what Moses means by something indecent. Literally, the Hebrew reads the nakedness of a thing, and uh, the rabbis of that day had no idea what uh, Moses was talking about. Their commentator, uh, commentaries are confusing, and no modern commentary knows, so I'm certainly not going to take a shot at it. All, and it doesn't matter anyway, because the point is not, you know, what is this indecent thing for which you can divorce your, your spouse? That's not the point, as we'll see. If a man marries a woman who, who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again. Now, if you read the text carefully, you can see that the command is not to divorce your wife. The regulation occurs in verse 4. The law states that, you, that this particular man can't have his wife back. When he has treated her that way, when he has cast her off, and another man has cast her off, 
Her first husband can't have her back. Why? Because a woman is not a football to be passed back and forth between men. You can't treat a woman that way. That's Moses' point. She's a human being. You can't trifle with her affections. You cannot trample on her heart like that. You can't do that to a woman. And that, that's, that's the intent of this law. It has nothing to do with, uh, with commanding divorce. It's a concession, again, to the hardness of their heart. You see? He's talking about something that has happened. This sort of thing happened. This kind of cruelty was actually carried out. Now he's saying to the man, you can't continue to hurt this woman that way any longer. You can't do that. Now, you see, the Pharisees totally misunderstood. They took this to be a command. What was intended to be a very humane, loving consideration for men, for women, was turned around and, and again became the men used it in order to dominate, dominate their women. They missed the whole point. And that's why Jesus corrects them. Now let's go back to Matthew 19 and follow his argument. They asked, why did Moses command a man to give his, his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, they thought that the command would be that if you, it's all right to divorce your wife. You, you can send her away. You can send her out of the house if she's displeasing to you. But, you, you know, the, the, the legal and, and proper thing to do is, is, to, is to give her a certificate of divorce, see. And Jesus is saying, no, no. Uh, Moses didn't command you to divorce your wives and give her a certificate. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts are hard. And may I say that's why people get divorces? And that's the only reason they get divorces. Someone's heart's hard. I very often, when people come into my office and they, and they, they want to talk about getting a divorce after we've chatted for a while, I'll ask them, you know, Jesus said somebody's heart's hard. Tell me, who, whose heart is hard? Who doesn't want to soften their heart toward the, the, the other person? Because I'm convinced that any marriage can be remade. Any relationship can be healed if people's hearts are soft. Now, I understand why people's hearts get hard. They've been hurt. Put your heart out there and get it trampled on very often. You're not going to put it out there anymore. You're going to build walls around yourself. You get tough and you get hard and you say to yourself, I'm not going to be hurt, but inside you've been desperately hurt. I understand that. But still, the basic problem is hardness of heart and an unwillingness to let the grace of God soften our hearts. I wear uh, soft uh, lenses, extended wear lenses, and I lost one the other day. popped out of my eye, and I couldn't find it. So I, I have a spare. I put it in, ordered another one, and three or four days later, I found the lens, and it was this little crinkled-up, hardened thing, and it was absolutely useless. I wouldn't want to put that thing in my eye. But uh, I dropped it in a little bit of saline solution and let it sit for two or three days, and it just softened right up. And I've got it. I'm wearing it now. It's just as good as new. God's grace is like that. You know, if we let it soak into our hearts, if we let his love flow into our, into our spirits, our hearts will soften. They'll soften. It really amounts to, to being forgiving. Jesus, the disciples asked Jesus one time, if, if my brother sins against me, how often should I forgive him? Seventy times? That seems like a, seems like a lot of forgiving. Jesus said, no, seventy times seven. That, that is an infinite number of times. Because, you see, that's what our Lord did for us. 
There never is a point at which our Lord says, that's enough, I've had it, this is it. And he walks away. Just keeps loving. Keeps loving. So Jesus puts his finger right on the issue. The problem is not irreconcilable differences. Oh yeah, there are irreconcilable differences. But the reason they're irreconcilable is because our hearts are hard. If our hearts are soft, any difficulty in marriage can be worked out. Any difficulty. As always, he goes right right to the root of the problem. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning, I tell you. And here our Lord gives us one exclusion. One exclusion. And this, this, is, this comes right from his authority. You don't have this in the Old Testament. It's not anywhere stated. It comes right from the lips of our Lord. He is speaking as an inspired prophet, as the Son of God himself, and he speaks with the authority of God. He grants one exclusion. I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and here he uses the big word, the comprehensive word for immorality, sexual immorality, that refers to almost any kind of unnatural vice, homosexuality, illicit heterosexual activity. Basically, he's talking about infidelity, forming a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And if you read it backwards, it reads that if your partner is unfaithful to you, you can initiate a divorce. You can file papers against them, and you can you can get a divorce, and you can remarry. That's the one basis on which we can dissolve a marriage, the, the one biblical basis that our Lord gives us. Oh, how different, how different that is from the world. The, the the NIV translators, as I said, put it well when they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It's that question that Jesus answered. If you're asking any reason, the answer is no. Or excuse me, if you answer any ask any reason, the answer is no. If you ask every reason, uh, yes, there is one. No, I said that backwards, didn't I? I got it right the first time, didn't I? Okay, well, let me try it again. We'll start from the beginning. If you ask the question for every reason, the answer is no. For any reason, the answer is yes. And the one reason is unfaithfulness. Now, does this mean that just because my partner has been unfaithful once, that that's the end of the marriage? No. No. There can be repentance and there can be forgiveness. What if, what, if, what if he or she uh, is unfaithful numerous times? Is that, is that the end of the marriage? No, no, not necessarily. There can be forgiveness. The, the best illustration of that forgiveness comes right out of the Bible itself. It's, it's the book of Hosea. I want to spend a whole uh, Sunday morning talking about Hosea at the end of this series because it gives us some... It gives us some more reasons for being forgiving and loving toward our mates. But the, Hosea was, was uh, he was chosen by God to have an unhappy marriage. That was the choice that God made for him because God wanted to use that as a metaphor of the unhappiness in the relationship between God and his people. Hosea stood in the place of God and his, his wife, Gomer, stood in the place of, uh, of Israel. Hosea's name is based upon the same root that Jesus' name is based on, salvation, 
Hoshea Yeshua, same roots. And uh, Gomer's wife was unfaithful. We, we don't know too much about the circumstances. Apparently, she, they married in good faith, but after a bit, there was infidelity, and then it was repeated, and she had two children, at least two children, out of wedlock. And finally, she ended up on the streets as a prostitute, was sold into slavery. And, and Hosea said, how, how can I give you up? How can I give you up? He didn't have any money, couldn't raise enough money to buy her back, so he, but he raised half of it. And then he, he got together everything else he had, barley and grain and all the goods that, that, that were in his household, and he took them down to the marketplace, and he, he bought her out of the marketplace. And he brought her home, and, and he said, now you're going to be my wife. You're going to be my wife. And, and the reason Hosea had to undergo that difficult marriage is because, as I said, it's a metaphor. It's a audiovisual aid of God's grace and his love. And Hosea lived that way in the midst of unfaithful Israel as a demonstration of God's love and his forgiving heart. God loves us like that and he wants us to love one another like that. And if your spouse has been unfaithful to you and they've come back and asked for forgiveness, then out of the awareness of how much God has forgiven us, we can forgive them. We can forgive and we can forgive and we can forgive. Now, how much is too much? Well, I, I can't tell you that. Only God can tell you. But, you know, if, if your spouse is persistently unfaithful, if that's a lifestyle and there's no commitment to the marriage, they, they really want, they don't want to be faithful to you. There's no desire to do so. And that hardness of heart sets in. And Jesus says, and I think he clearly says, that then you, you can institute a divorce and you can remarry. But, but the Lord... Would, would want you to wait and wait and wait and be patient and let God deal with that person and let him deal with your own heart as well. Now, it seems clear to me that this is one exception. We are to cleave together, except for unmarital faithfulness. There, there, is, there is another reason, I believe, although Christians have been divided on this matter. It's, it's the one that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 7. Would you turn there with me, please? There are the Gospels, and then the book of Acts, book of Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> Paul takes up another uh, number of, of matters here in this chapter. We're going to come back to this chapter in a couple of weeks when we talk about the single state. I simply want to read uh, a couple of paragraphs now. Uh, verse 10 is the place to begin. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, I'm simply restating what the Lord has already said. Paul's not saying he disagrees with the Lord. He affirms it, but this is something which uh, the Lord himself has taught. He's thinking back to the section in Matthew 19. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not divorce her husband. He uses the word, uh, for divorce, the word that's translated separate in most translations, which is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 19. What God has joined together, let no man separate. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she has, literally, Paul is, uh, was writing to a church where uh, divorces had taken place. 
And so his instruction is this. If, if you have divorced your husband, in this case the woman, or if the man has divorced his wife, he or she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled. And a husband must not divorce his wife. The purpose of remaining un, unmarried is for the purpose of reconciliation. Because again, God's intention is that one man and one woman stay together for life. So as long as you're unmarried, there's always the possibility of a reconciliation. Now, this, this is uh, no advance on our Lord's teaching. He does not pick up the exclusion clause because I think he, he assumes it. Just as Mark and Luke don't mention it because they assume it as well. But he goes beyond Jesus' teaching because this is a new situation. In Corinth, uh, couples would, uh, were married as non-Christians. They then heard the gospel. One party or the other would, would come to know Christ. They would become Christians. What do you do then in a case like that when one person is a Christian and the other is not? It's a decision. And remember, again, this is an apostolic command. I've mentioned before, these apostles speak with self-conscious authority. Paul says to the Thessalonians, when you receive my word, you received it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God which is among you. That's either very audacious or is simply recognizing the authority that our Lord has given him. So when an apostle speaks, he speaks with the same authority as our Lord. So when he says, I say this, I, not the Lord, he's not contradicting the Lord again. He's simply saying this is something about which our Lord said nothing. But uh, this is an issue that needs to be addressed. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And then he uh, supplies the reason in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified. That is, uh, he is set apart. He now has Christian influence. Someone in, his, uh, in, uh, someone in his life who's manifesting the grace and the character of God. It just does not mean that the non-Christian husband is sanctified in the sense that he is now a believer. There are no guarantees that this is the case. Paul says so later on. Simply saying that the non-believer is set apart in a special way as an opportunity to see the grace of God at work in the life of his or her mate. Uh, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. They, too, are separated. In other words, the children themselves have an opportunity to live in a home where there's a Christian influence. That's all that, that Paul is saying here. So he's saying, for the sake of the household, stay together. If your husband wants to live with you, he's a non-Christian, do not divorce him. Now, this came right out of actual situations, I'm sure. People were deeply concerned because their mates were not Christians and they were wondering uh, what, uh, what they should do. Paul says, stay together, stay together. And very often, and there are in this body, people who, uh, who are divided in that sense. One mate is a Christian, the other is not. And uh, they're pleased to live with one another. There are non-Christian men who are very loving, kind husbands. And the situation seems to be going well. There are some situations where they are not. There are also some situations where there are Christian men that are very difficult to live with. So I'm not singling out non-Christians. I'm simply saying that, that in some cases, this is a situation where you know, people are pleased to live together. Paul says, continue to do so for the sake of the, 
an unchristian husband and for the sake of the children. However, he says in verse 15, if the unbeliever leaves, he divorces, he takes the initiative, he files the papers, he wants to go, and he goes, don't file against him, don't uh, leave him, but if he chooses to leave, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in, in such circumstances, that is, not bound to try to perpetuate an impossible situation. God has called us to live in peace, that is, don't contest the divorce, don't kick up a ruckus, don't make a fuss, just let him go, because, he says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? It's a good word, because uh, the Christian mate will think, well, if I let him go, he'll never find Christ, but that's uh, something beyond our control. God is well able to bring someone else in, into his or, or her life. So uh, uh, he says you should let them go. God has called us to live in peace. Now this is what theologians refer to as the Pauline privilege. There are two ways of interpreting this passage. Some would say that Paul is granting the Christian uh, party in the relationship the right to permit the other person to go. They're not bound in that sense. Others would say that the Christian then is free to remarry. For myself, I take that latter course, although it is a difficult question. Christians are divided. But my feeling is that if we're going to err on this issue, it's better to err on the side of being uh, too lenient. Paul simply is not clear, doesn't specify. And so, uh, personally, my feeling is that this is a second reason for divorce and remarriage. The first would be marital unfaithfulness. The second would be where a non-Christian mate initiates a divorce and leaves, then the Christian person in that relationship is free to remarry. And our Lord and the apostles would say there are no other reasons. This is why I say this is a hard saying. And this is why I say this is heartbreaking to so many people, because it means being in a, in a relationship that may be very, very difficult. Now, I think there are biblical reasons to separate for a time. As long as that separation is intended to be redemptive, as long as you're getting help. And I don't think that women or men have to submit to physical and emotional abuse over the, over the long haul. Uh, Carolyn and I have a paper in the rack. You're welcome to take it. Entitled, what, uh, what, How Much Should a Woman Take? Specifically addressed to women, but it certainly applies to men as well. So that there may come a time in your marriage where, for purposes of restoring the marriage, you may have to separate for a time. But, I, but what our Lord is teaching us, I almost said it, it's my feeling, but that really is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with what I think. What our Lord is saying and what the apostles are saying is that the, these are the only two bases for divorce and remarriage. There are no others. And you say, but you don't know the hurt in my marriage. You don't know how hard it is. You don't understand no, I, I don't. I can't. And I'm sure that no one else can understand either. But I, I can tell you that our Lord cares like you wouldn't believe. He understands. He knows. Isaiah 63 says that in our affliction, He is afflicted. He is the Hosea, the offended husband. Every act of unfaithfulness on our part is analogous to the acts of unfaithfulness that, that our husbands and, and wives may do. You see, he understands. His heart is broken. 
just as your heart is broken. He, he is the Father of comfort. He's the God of mercy. He, he's a friend who cares. Do you understand? It matters to him that you're hurting. He's not laying down the law and saying, you just have to tough it. He's, he, he's saying, I understand. I love you. I care about you. Your life may not go easy as Hosea's life was not easy. It was very, very hard. We don't know the outcome of the story. Even We don't know what happened to Hosea's wife. He may have lived to the end of his physical life in a very difficult situation. And God may call you to live in those sorts of circumstances, but God cares, matters to him. And he doesn't ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. You understand that? He went to the cross. He laid his life on the line. He went all the way. He suffered the hurt, the injustice, the malice, the evil. He will not ask you to go through anything that he himself has not undergone. The third thing I would like to say is that marriages can be remade. I want to go back again to this matter of a hard heart because our Lord puts his finger right on the issue. God can soften any heart. I know you've been hurt, and I know it's difficult to to open up again to someone who's trifle with your affections. That's very, very, very difficult. But, But the real... The real issue is this. Our Lord has forgiven and forgiven and forgiven. How can we do anything less? Corey Ten Boom tells a story, uh, something that happened to her once she was in Germany, preaching on forgiveness to a group. And, and one of the guards from Ravensbrück, the uh, concentration camp in which she was incarcerated, in, in which her family died, I think every member of her family perished there. She had been mistreated, terribly mistreated during her, the period of her confinement. One of the guards from that, that camp came up afterwards, extended his hand to her. She recognized him immediately, and he extended his hand to her and uh, began to weep and ask for her forgiveness. And she said, I, I could not reach out and shake his hands. I was just filled with resentment and with hatred for the man. And then she said, I, I prayed that God would at least make me willing to, to just do the mechanical thing, to shake his hand. And she did. She reached out and took his hand, and she said her heart was flooded with a sense of the love of God and with his forgiveness. And she was able to embrace this man and forgive him totally. Only God can soften hearts. That's what I'm saying. And and we have to be at least willing to be softened or at least willing to be made willing to be softened. And we have to ask God, will you do that? Will you enable me to forgive my, my erring partner, this one who's been unfaithful to me, this one who's treated me with so much unkindness over the years? And you see, we can only do that because we're greatly loved of God. We love because he first loved us. There isn't any other basis for for forgiveness. Is this going to hurt? You bet your life it's going to hurt. The hammer, the anvil, the saw, the rasp, those are the tools that God uses to mold us and shape us, make of us the, the, the beautiful, serviceable thing that God wants us to be. There isn't any other way. It's through suffering that the glory always comes. It's my experience that men and women who are 
have gone through hard marriages or are undergoing hard marriages right now are very often the people that God is greatly using. You can see the beauty and the, and the grace of, of our Lord Jesus manifest in their life. I want to read this little poem that I often read. I, I've read it before, but it's to the point. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so bold a man that all the world will be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. I don't know any other way to grow. It's through pain and through hurt that, that we are healed and then we're able to, to heal others. God's grace and his glory very often comes through suffering. So even though you're called to live in a very difficult marriage, that in itself can become the instrument that God uses to equip you to heal others. And then on ahead is heaven and home. This isn't all there is. That's the point. I uh, recall recently someone saying to me, you expect me to live with this woman for the rest of my life? And I said, no. <laughs> Just for the rest of your natural life. Because this isn't all there is. We're made for heaven. And the older I get and the closer I get to home, uh, the more that uh, truth impacts me that what happens in this life is really not that important. And Paul was able to say with, with a ring of authority in his, in his voice, these light, momentary afflictions are working for me an exceeding weight of glory. What difference does it make if we live 30 or 40 years in a difficult situation in terms of what is doing to us, in terms of preparing us for glory, and then the prospect of, of heaven and home itself? That's what we're made for. We're not made for this earth. We're made for heaven and for home. Now, I'm not talking pie in the sky, by and by, you know, grit your teeth, tough it out. Until you die, I'm not saying that. There can be real joy and peace in serving now, and you can see great progress in, in, in your life. But on ahead, there's this wonderful thing that God is making of us. And one of these days, we're going to step into his presence, and we're going to look back on these light momentary afflictions and say, it's no big deal. I'm just so glad to be here. It's what I was made for. I'm, I'm at home at last. Now, I, I know this is hard. I can see you wince and flinch and turn white and look at the floor. And some of you have gone through divorces and you're thinking it's all over for me. It's not. I just want to say again, God loves you in a way you could never understand. God hates divorce, but he loves divorcees. And he can begin to rebuild your life and remake you and use you. God understands your pain, and he wants to turn your pain into something that's profitable. Let's pray. Will you stand with me, please? And let's pray together.
Lord, we understand that the bottom line issue in all of this is simply commitment. You have committed yourself to us. You will never leave us or forsake us. And our response to that is to commit ourselves to you and to your word. We realize as Christians that we're not at liberty to to second-guess your word, to modify it, to adapt it to our culture. Our responsibility is simply to obey, even though at times we don't understand. We know that, that you're wise. We know that your purposes are good that your ultimate goal is to produce glory in our lives. We trust you. Keep us, Lord, from believing the big lie that that somehow you're trying to thwart and frustrate us and cramp our style and, and keep us from satisfaction and fulfillment. Help us to realize that we are only ultimately satisfied by your love and by our response of obedience to you. Help us to realize that, Lord. Fill us this morning with a sense of your, of your everlasting love for us, a love that goes on and on despite our disobedience. Surround us with that sense of, of compassion and your concern and your commitment to us so that we, out of the security of that relationship, can begin to commit ourselves to others. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.